Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg Kotz. i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show in the week their much anticipated new album sky blue sky is going to be released we have wilco live they're going to talk about the new record and give us some exclusive live performances and later on, we'll review the new album by Rush, which I, at least, am excited about. <laughs> and Greg Cott will have a Desert Island jukebox pick. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. We've been following the story on Sound Opinions for several months. The uh, future of internet radio broadcasting is in jeopardy because higher royalty rates uh, have been imposed across the board on these internet broadcasters. They were to have gone into effect this week, but uh, there has been a two-month stay. Uh, they have until July 15th to plead their case. Meanwhile, a number of internet broadcasters are already reacting to the possibility that they will have to pay higher royalty rates for broadcasting music on the internet airwaves. And Pandora.com took one of the biggest steps in that they have completely cut back on the global internet radio market. In other words, they will no longer be broadcasting in the international market. Uh, they were blocking foreign visitors through computer internet protocol addresses from picking up Pandora.com. Isn't it supposed to be the World Wide Web? Yeah. <laughs> It's no longer worldwide. Uh, they are now restricting themselves to strictly uh, U.S. outlets only. It's a pretty stunning move, Jim, because uh, the share of listeners in Europe is, uh, for Internet radio is 49.5 million listeners, which is even more than it is in the U.S. market, about 34.5 million. So we're talking about a big slice of, of Pandora's market, yet they are feeling the pinch, thinking that they're not going to be able to afford uh, the higher royalty rates that are also being imposed in Europe and basically cutting back their operations. It's a sad day for Internet radio broadcasters. Greg, we talked a few weeks ago with Pandora founder Tim Westegren about the uh, troubles his company now faces. It's going to smash every Internet broadcaster uh, from, from you know, the small college you know, or public broadcaster all the way up through AOL and Yahoo. If these remain unchanged, we're done. Obviously, this is a huge story. We'll continue to stay on it on Sound Opinions. Right now, the deadline's been pushed back. There may be some hope from the Senate, which is uh, considering a bill that may come to the rescue of the webcasters. But speaking of Europe, Greg. Man, oh man, oh man. You know, Greg, ugly Americans that we are, we tend to think that we founded the world on everything great in music, including lousy but usually popular music. Not so. And Eurovision, the uh, huge contest in Europe each year, reminds us of that. That is a track called 
Molitiba by an artist uh, from Serbia, 23-year-old singer named Maria Serifovic. She is the winner of this year's Eurovision Song Contest. No, kids, crappy popular music did not start with American <laughs> Idol. The Eurovision contest goes back to 1950, right? Or, or the early 50s. 1955, I think, was the first one. And it started as a way to unite a war-torn Europe. This thing is huge over there. The estimated uh, viewership of, of the TV broadcast is, is as high as 600 million in all of the European wow. Union countries. And, and also now it has spread to the Middle East and, and somehow Canada's involved. Don't ask me. Everybody but America, right? Previous winners, the only one I can come up with of any real worth is ABBA, which won with Waterloo and went on to great, but also Celine Dion. Now, Jim, yep, I was going to say Celine Dion. I said of worth. And let us not forget, (laughs) let us not forget Lulu. Lulu, Lulu was cool. Lulu was cool. I don't personally think we're ever going to hear from uh, Miss Serifovic again, Uh, certainly not judging on that uh, song, which was not the pegged winner. I think they were (laughs) thinking that this British act, Scooch, was going to win with some song called Flying the Flag. But hey, Serbia... Coming on strong, beating the United Kingdom. Further evidence of the decline of the empire. The sun has set. Churchill turns in his grave. And Miss Serifovic may or may not be famous for five more minutes. Jim, last week we reviewed the new album by this band, Wilco, Sky Blue Sky. Sixth album of the band's career, fascinating career. One of the most fascinating in rock music the last decade. Each album different from the last consistently raising the bar for themselves artistically, and now a huge touring band throughout the Absolutely. United States. People can hear our review from last week still on the web at soundopinions.org. Right now, we've got a real treat, though. Wilco invited us to come out to their first American concert in support of Sky Blue Sky. You're going to hear a lot about this band. We were there. They're performing at Northwestern University in a horrible-sounding gymnasium. We got to talk to them. We got to get a couple of exclusive songs. It was a heck of a treat. That's all on the hill. We're here with the entire band, Jeff Tweedy, John Stewart, Glenn Kochi, Michael Jorgensen, Nels Klein, Pat Sansone. Gentlemen, it is a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, talk a little bit about the making of this record. I think, you know, where I, where I would like to start is actually with uh, Mr. Klein, Nels Klein. Nels, you, uh, you and Pat joined the band about the same time after A Ghost is Born was recorded. You have been with many bands and many projects. What were your expectations joining a band like Wilco when you came in here three years ago? Well, I had just heard uh, A Ghost is Born because Jeff had sent me a CDR of the unsequenced, unmastered version. So my first expectation was that I wouldn't be playing any guitar because Jeff is playing so much rad guitar on that record. So that was one of the first things I asked him is, what am I going to (laughs) play? So that was my first expectation. After that, I thought, well, I hope I can fit in. And I like to be part of the orchestra, so I, I think... It's all worked out splendidly. I read a really revealing quote that you gave, Nels, in another interview where you said, ask me why I joined Wilco. It was for the money. I'd like to be able to say I sat around dreaming of being in a band like Wilco, but I I wasn't. I did it. Jeff caught me at a time where I needed some cash. Well, it wasn't that I needed some cash. I needed to not go back into the workforce as a normal working person, which I was about to do. So, yeah, I mean, the timing was absolutely perfect. I'm going to put John on the spot next, along with Jeff. 
you're founding member of Wilco. It's been a 12-year band. But this is a, this particular lineup, this particular six-piece lineup of Wilco is the longest live incarnation of that band. Been together for three years. How is this lineup different from the other incarnations of Wilco, and how is it better or worse? Well, it, it, it really feels like it, actually. You know, I just, uh, someone feels like it's it's been around for five years in a way. It, um, I think uh, the first time we rehearsed with Pat and Nels, it, I could um, I could really tell there was uh, uh, we we got along immediately well from the start. That was nice, but I could tell that there was going to be a sort of higher level of musical communication after the first couple of days. And I think we had ever had in a lineup, and uh, the new guys are so they're so uh, talented and everything. I knew it it was going to be. You know, I felt really confident. Did know? it take a while to get there, though? I mean, it's you ended up making this record where the six of you are together playing in a room. That's not something you can just fall into and have six guys get together and make a record that way. I mean, yeah, it was it was a culmina- culmination of uh, a lot of a lot of shows. You know, three years I guess worth of shows, and you know, obviously the live record and everything. And so, yeah, it was um, it was road tested as well. Cool. Well, maybe we should have you guys play a song. What are we going to do, Jeff? Um, Play a song called Side with the Seeds.
Lucky SOBs sitting here with Wilco <laughs> on stage, side with the seeds, getting the band to play for us, command performance. This feels wrong. It feels like, you know, we're like, it's like really the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner where you dress up in a tuxedo and Ahmed Erdogan, before he died, would order, you know, whoever, Springsteen, to play for you. Play for me now, <laughs> pissant, or you shan't get into the Rock and Roll Hall. You know what would be really, really would have been cool, though, is if you had been able to bring a facsimile of Paula Abdul to sit in between you guys. <laughs> Which one of us would be Simon Cowell, Should have thought Jeff? of that. You could both be Simon Cowell. <laughs> it's okay. But this is what it feels like. Actually, singing, I was just thinking, this must, I don't know what, it like, it's what it's like to be on American Idol now. Yeah. Awesome. It's a, it a little pitchy. No, check it out. It's a little pitchy at the top. <laughs> <laughs> so not a song about Sky Saxon and the seeds of pushing too hard. I love the seeds of pushing too hard. It's a, I know you do. Yeah, but uh, no, it's not about them. All right, a lot of rock critics, a lot of our peers, compares a lot of the guitar work to television. I also hear what Robert Quine did on Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet. What was the goal? Because in, in, there's other songs, too, where you have all three guitars. And Pat, Pat's, Pat's also playing a lot of guitar on the record. That's, that's a lot of guitar and a lot of, you know, I mean, one wrong turn and you're the outlaws and you're in serious trouble. You know what I mean? <laughs> so how do you, how do you work all that that's, out? That was the thrilling part of it. You know, it's like, it's trying to avoid, you know, Molly Hatchet and yeah. steer steer clear of um, whatever April wine. Jeff, you said something to me uh, the other day when I talked to you for the newspaper that was interesting too. And you said, in the world of improv, contributing silence is as valuable sometimes as contributing anything else. I, that sounds really smart. I said that. You did say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> I haven't done a whole lot of improv in my life, like some other members of the band. I, I'm imagining that to be true. But we well, were talking about Nelson. I don't. I don't think that. I don't honestly don't think that that just applies to improv, though. I think that that applies to all music, all composition, improv, otherwise anything that's you know anything that's musical. The rests are going to be as important as the notes. The um, the space in between the notes, in a lot of cases, is what um, actually allows you to hear. The notes themselves, you know, allows you know allows there to be some resonance and and space. <laughs> I think those guitar parts though are really a cool part of the record. And when you have you know two or three guitars plus John's bass, the textures are really cool. And I think there may be some impressions. Well, they got together and they jammed. How how were those parts created? Nels will handle this one. He'll... I actually think there's one point that's really interesting about this, which is that no one ever says 
to Pat what to play. So he just picks up the guitar when he feels like playing the guitars. And then we didn't say, no, no, don't play guitar on this. So I don't think there was any serious jamming on some of those songs. And then others we just screw off. But I'm not sure a lot of that made it to what you're hearing. We're pretty concise even when we're messing around. Yeah, it didn't feel like it was just kind of gratuitous. It seemed like a lot of thought was put into every note. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I think it really kind of worked out to be a healthy balance of meticulous attention to detail, which we did spend a lot of hours really just honing in on different things and playing songs over and over, and even sections of songs over and over. And at the same time, I, I don't remember a lot of like verbal cues or verbal dis discussions leading to anything more than things just kind of happening. So mm -hmm. I think that... We did a good job this time around of keeping things relegated to the musical realm more than the conceptual realm or the, you know, spoken realm or the, you know, we just kind of, we just played a lot more. And How many, uh, Jeff, uh, you said three or four sessions, two week sessions, everybody sitting in a circle up in your loft. How many of these songs had been played by the band on the road during that three year constant touring cycle and how many of them some of them are real old i know impossible well, germany's about been around. i'd say about half of the songs were road tested or maybe a little more than half or things that we had you know given a shot at least to hearing what it sounded like on, in, on a stage in front of an audience and you know it's that's actually one of the things when you're talking to john before about this lineup of the band and and you know how it felt different and in a lot of ways this is more a first record than a lot of, uh, well, than our first record was in a lot of ways because AM wasn't a full lineup when we went in to make AM. Um, and if you look at the way most people's first records are, they're a band for a long time and then they get a record deal and they go make a record and they've played a lot of music together and they've sat and played a lot of music in a studio together and in front of people and then they go make a record. That's what it really felt like for this band. You know, we'd, we'd you know, been out slugging, slugging it out on the road for three years and, yeah. you know, finally got a chance to sit down and make a record. And it You're right. That first album is like college graduation for a lot of people. Right. And yep. that's what it was like for you here, appropriately enough, at Northwestern University with Wilco on Sound Opinions. We're going to be back with more discussion with the band, plus another set of live songs in just a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott. We're going to get back to our discussion with members of the band Wilco about making their brand new album, Sky Blue Sky. The greatest singer in rock and roll Would have to be a Romeo His vocal cords are made of gold He just looks a little too Interesting thing about this record, I think it was that it was made as quickly as it was in some ways. Even though it took, you know, there was three years between albums, the session seems to be pretty rapid fire in the way things, the way work got done. John, you want to you wanna talk about that a little bit? Why, why things went differently from that standpoint this time? What we, what we really realized with this lineup was that they really did kind of make every sort of era their own of the band. And, and they were able to do, uh, to kind of play organically a lot of the things that we used to have to trigger from a sampler or something, say from, from Yankee Hotel. But um, I think it was just the fact that we had six people sort of chomping at the bit to do it, you know. So, so what influenced it? I mean, was it, um, did the songwriting influence the, the, the kind of songs you were writing influenced the approach that was taken where it was sort of more organic or, or did the fact that the band had been on the road and had become sort of an organic unit influence the way you were writing songs? Which came first? Oh, I, I think it's probably more the latter. We were gaining an awareness of a sense of community around the band that probably was being felt more than it ever had been. And it, it just seemed like, I think the, the earliest concept of what we really wanted to do was to do whatever it took to stay out of our way. <laughs> and and, and um, when you're a band and you've been a band for a long time, it, that's easier th- said than done a lot of case, in a lot of cases. You, know? you, um, you tend to drag your history around behind you and you tend to, I don't know, it's hard to not have your own conceptions of what Especially people... when people are writing books about you and stuff, right, Jeff? Yeah, Dragging God forbid. <laughs> 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 well... That's not even the half of it, you know. Everybody does, not just rock bands. Everybody pulls their whole life around behind them. And I don't know, I, I just think that that was, that was what really steered the, the, the feeling of the record, the directness of the record, the openness of the record was all built around us getting into a room and, and staying out of our way and allowing ourselves to communicate musically and having some faith that we'd arrive at something that was... Uh, worth listening to, and also with faith that the act of doing it for us is the most consoling thing in our lives, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. actually kind of the, the reason we've all been doing it for so long. Well, what in, inspires you to sit down and write, Jeff? I don't know. I, when there's a deadline? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so you're just like us. Yeah. No, I, I, once that idea comes out, comes to you, you have this melody and you have all these things that you're working on it even if you're not working on it. You're like, you can walk around and, and, a, and a melody, once it's established, uh, lyrics settle on a melody like dust on furniture, you know? It, eventually, <laughs> they do. It was like, That's it, a great it's, phrase, It's though. sturdy <laughs> enough that, it'll, that something can rest on it. And, and um, I don't really try to worry about it too much. I, I do write every day, but very little, if anything, ever comes of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Same is said of us often, <laughs> Mr. Cotton and I. Uh, Jeff, you've, you've talked since day one about this being a collaborative band, and this seems to be a very collaborative record. And obviously there have been ebbs and flows in, uh, in Wilco's career in terms of how that's worked. What have you learned from that experience over those 12-plus years of Wilco being together? What, what makes a band truly collaborative, and what stands in the way of that? Well, I probably stood in the way of that 
you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times, to be completely honest. I think that uh, allowing myself a chance to get a little bit healthier and all those things certainly contributed to a more successful collaboration. But I guess what, you know, to answer your question, you, you, I don't know, you just kind of can't make it happen. I did always think that that was what the most ideal version of a band would be, is, is something that feels very collective with everyone invested in it and, and everyone feeling free to express their ideas and contribute. And uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, lots of things get in the way of very simple concepts. You know, very simple ideas tend to be the things that are hardest to do. And, and that was something that, looking back, wasn't something you can just manufacture. It, and I just feel fortunate that the way things all worked out in, in the long run is um, kind of standing here with, like, my best friends in the world, and I get to play music with them, and and um, and it feels kind of like that that um, that uh, youthful idea I had a long time ago. Even when I was an Uncle Tupelo, that was kind of my daydream about what rock music was supposed to be like. I, I really always expected us to live together like the monkeys, you know. <laughs> I saw the bunk beds in the loft. Yeah, we did. We we did live together like the monkeys. But we lived together like monkeys. <laughs> like, there you go. So true. We want another song. We want yeah, to keep yakking. Absolutely. What are you going to do? Uh, sky Blue Sky. Grass of season tunes I couldn't place windows open now raining in maroon yellow blue golden gray the trunks ricochet. Buildings downtown empty so long ago. Windows broken and dreaming. So happy to leave what was my home with the sky blue sky. This rotten time. Wouldn't see so bad to me now. Oh, if I didn't die, should I be satisfied? I survived. It's good enough for now. Sky, this 
about in time Wouldn't seem so bad to me now Oh, if I didn't die, should I be satisfied? I survived, it's good enough for now Beautiful stuff. Sky Blue Sky, the title track from the, uh, the new Wilco record, sixth studio record. You are listening to Sound Opinions. We are here with Wilco. Uh, it's kind of a heady question. I don't even know if you can answer it. But how do the lyrics and the themes of the songs wind up influencing the music? Last time Wilco was on Sound Opinions, it was, it was one week after 9-11. And that album though recorded and written before 9-11, seem to be talking about very dark things in the world at large. This is an album that in large part talks about good things in my life right here, right now, in my family, in, in, my, uh, in my marriage, in my relationships. Not entirely, but, but in part. And you were saying, you know, even if the world sucks and the political situation sucks, it's good to take stock of the things that you have in your life because how can you affect the change if you're not grateful for what you have. Well, I don't, I don't think that the record is only about that either. I think mm-hmm. that that's certainly an element of the record, is being able to acknowledge the good with the bad. But I think it's also being able to acknowledge that the, the larger picture is much, much more difficult to address and almost impossible to address unless you have sorted out the conflicts within yourself. And I think, think that that's actually one of the... Um, that's one of the only things that I feel is true about the world. Is if everybody kind of took care of their own stuff, things would be a lot easier for everybody. <laughs> you know, um, the question's been asked a lot, Jeff, but we might as well ask it too because I think people are curious about it. The fact that you had been in a rehab clinic, you came out of it, you're healthier than you've been in years. How has that influenced the tone of this music? You know, people are going to say, well, it's you know, there's less angst as a result of the fact that he's feeling better than ever. I mean, is that a, a fair statement to make, or, or, or is there a correlation there at all? Well, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't think that, I don't think I would have been able to affect any significant change in my life without coming to terms with the idea that I'm getting older and that that's not such a bad thing. And it's not something that rock music addresses with much maturity, if ever. But who cares? I think it's a... Um, I'm, I'm actually a little tired of answering the question about what, how, much, uh, how much it affects the music, you know, regaining some, some sense of equilibrium and all that stuff. You know, obviously, being able to physically, just, just on the physical level, being able to be there and not throwing up is going to help everybody help the environment immensely <laughs> you know but at the same time I, I don't I don't know I feel like I did much, when I was a much younger person and and that's the part of me that I've regained and I think that that's the the you know that's the side that's probably doing more work in in the uh, creative process Michael you're on mic back there Michael Jorgensen I hope so good oh and, and your spades let, let's bring Michael Jorgensen into this um, we have a band here of very talented musicians and it seems to me that a lot of the strength of this album is that not everybody is showing off. It's really kind of an ensemble effort. 
how does that actually work in the studio where I'm sure you've got lots of virtuosic ideas about how a song could be better and man I could have a great solo in the middle of this thing and it would sound fantastic man but how do you sort of uh, dial down those feelings that you know hey I could be playing 95 percent more on this tune or doing more incredible stuff I think that it's to answer that is sort of what Jeff was saying earlier about you know the space between the notes is, is, is very important as well as the notes themselves and you know at times it's very challenging to to find a place to exist in all of the sound that's happening but you just sort of sit down and you know kind of listen to what's happening and try to use as much or as little of your brain as possible and just react emotionally to <laughs> what's happening or have an idea or concept of something that you want to try and at the same time not try anything that's too outrageous and will you know soil the vibe of the moment or something but you know you just Sort of like a little bit of trial and error. Soil the vibe. It's the name of the next record. <laughs> Soil the vibe. <laughs> Glenn, you were saying you weren't going to talk in this interview because you were on the show for mobile, but you should answer the same question. People are saying, where's all that? Where are the inglentions? Where are the weird noises? Where is the, the, the great... Uh, Who's saying that? It's on page 78 of the Sound Opinions discussion board, which you shouldn't be reading. I'm not reading. I'm you just asking reading. you who's, who's You're reading saying your that. reviews. I know you are. That's a bad habit. Oh, no. <laughs> I got to keep my eye on you guys, man. I don't mean our reviews. You should read my review and Cots and then tune everything no, else out. No, those are the ones I don't read. Hey, I thought oh. you were asking me a question. <laughs> yeah, it's Glenn's turn. How, how do you decide what to play? In? I mean, we're, that's why we're in a band. You know, We all have other other projects, other outlets to, you know, get our rocks off, for lack of a better term. Um, I mean, we're in a band, you're part of an ensemble, and there's enough hands on deck to kind of cover cover things. If, if any one personality or sound fills up too much space, then what's the point of being in the band? Yeah. Especially for me, that rings true, touring on that record last year. You know, I have many opportunities to, to have lots of fun in that realm, but for me, it's just as much fun to just come and concentrate and be part of the band and communicate with the guys on stage and the audience, even if it yeah. is just a simple brush pattern. You know, it's no less fun or interesting. You know or what I'm fleshing on, uh, Greg? As, as as Glenn's talking, as Michael was talking, we had the opportunity to talk to Booker T. Jones a couple of weeks ago at South by Southwest, and I said, "You're one of the most famous sidemen in rock history." Is that a title that bothers you and he said no I think it's like the greatest compliment to play exactly what's needed to make a good piece of music great so. I can sing like Whitney Houston I just choose not to <laughs> you know it's it's just not appropriate for the type of material we're doing well I think it's time for another song can you do the next song as Whitney Houston well maybe Since a Whitney Houston American cover Idol? maybe what are we going to hear Jeff what light singing a sound you want other people to sing along just sing what you feel don't let anyone say it's wrong be trying to paint a picture but you're not sure which colors belong just paint what you see don't let anyone say You're strung out like a kite I stung awake in the night It's alright to be frightened When there's a light 
If you like singing a song and you want other people to sing along, sing what you feel. Don't let anybody tell you it's wrong. I think that's your manifesto for this album, Jeff. Those are, <laughs> those are the lyrics I quoted. Thank you so much, Nels Klein, Michael Jorgensen, Glenn Kochi, John Stewart, Pat Sansone, and you, Mr. Tweedy. Thank you. Thanks for having <laughs> thanks us. Thanks for being on Sound I mean, thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you for being had. <laughs> What you're hearing is Wilco covering the birds 100 years from now. That's a great cover song. And in two weeks, Jim and I are going to be discussing great cover songs. We, of course, want your feedback because on Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So send us an email, interact at soundopinions.org. Give us your choice for the best cover song of all time. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we are going to review the new album, the 18th of their career, debuted at number three on the charts last week by Rush. Plus, we're going to have a Desert Island jukebox pick from Mr. Cox. It's gonna 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the one and only Rush from the 18th album of their long and storied career. It's a song called Armor and Sword. The lyrics in that song give the album its uh, title, Snakes and Arrows. Neil Peart, the uh, lyricist, philosopher, drummer. I had to drag you kicking and screaming to review this record, Greg, but Rush is still relevant, if you ask me. This album debuted at number three on the Billboard chart last week, and they are a phenomenal cult band. I get more email whenever I write pro-con or otherwise about Rush than almost any other act I've ever had to write about for the paper. And I think people have been hoping this band would reclaim a measure of its greatness in the 70s and 80s for some time. Neil Peart suffered two tragic losses a couple of years ago. His wife died from cancer, and his 19-year-old daughter was killed in a car crash. This guy is universally considered, and I say this as a sometimes columnist for Modern Drummer, the best drummer of his generation, probably the best drummer alive today. And not to get all virtuosa geek on you, but but just to watch him play is like watching what it must have been like when God created the Grand Canyon or oh my something. God. I mean, the guy's a force of nature. Give me a break. I kid you not. The guy is a genius. <laughs> As a lyricist, I'm not, you know, well, whatever. I mean, he used to be pretty bad when he would quote and rewrite Ayn Rand. But, and in recent years, he's gotten kind of all eggheady philosophical, right? But, but now he's kind of grounded. He found himself after these two losses in his life by crossing America on a motorcycle, wrote two books about it. And he's back. You know, the, the band tried to come back in 2002 with Vapor Trail. I don't think it was a very good album. At least they were rocking again, but it wasn't the rush we knew and loved. Where are they today? We're going to get into our opinions in a minute. First, I want to give you some of the music. This is the first single from the album. It's called Far Cry. It finds Rush back in all of its glory. Alex Lifeson, Getty Lee, and Neil Peart on Sound Opinions. Yeah. 
yes, I'm feeling the Grand Canyon being created as I listen to that song. Jim. You know what I'm saying? Um, the yeah. rivers cutting through and this this work of majesty and glory. Right with you there. Far Cry, uh, the best song, I think, on uh, the new album from Rush, Snakes and Arrows. Jim, you and I have debated this band for many years, and I have to say, love them or hate them, they have established a very unique persona. They have created a, a foundation and a fan base for themselves by doing it completely their own way. And, well, and, and it's and, interesting because in the late 90s, there was sort of an alternative rock reassessment of Rush mm-hmm. where you had these bands like Primus and all those new metal bands, the more adventurous ones like Deftones. And, yeah, Living and Color. Billy all these Corgan. bands were paying, paying homage to yeah, them. Suddenly Rush was cool. Uh, yeah, there was that brief moment. And I think they kind of blew it by making some really kind of uh, experimental records. They sort of got yeah. caught up in the vibe that, hey, we're contemporary and relevant. Yeah. And they they experimented with things like funk and rap, and it was just awful. They had no, a bad that, 90s. That Nuts and Bolts album was oh. the nadir. That's as bad as it ever got. So, as you said, I think they are returning to what they do best, and, and that uh, consists of, of the following things. You've got Alex Lifeson, who sort of straddles the bridge between texture and these massive metal power chords on his guitar. You've got Neil Peart, who said, you know, Grand Canyon are not parting. He he is a massive drummer. I, I hear more calculus and geometry in his drumming than the Grand Canyon parting. And Getty Lee, whose voice is a, a love it or hate it proposition. He was singing in those super high registers in the 70s when the fans really loved them. And then you have Peart's lyrics, which are super, you know, he wants to be the cerebral philosopher king of, of heavy metal. And on this record, I have to say, the lyrics are... Uh, Part of the reason I don't like it, I think Peart uh, is saying some really obvious things here about the nature of faith and belief, and that the only things that man can get by on are hope and love. You know, I think he's pretending to say something really profound when, in fact, he's saying something that's been said many, many times before and and much better. Secondly, wow! See, see, I I think he lost the plot lyrically for a long time on the last three, four albums. Yeah, and here, you know, you know what these lyrics remind me of, Kurt Vonnegut. You know, the way Vonnegut could say something so simple, three words, so it goes. And yeah, it's an obvious point that faith is hollow and that love is one of the only things that gets you through life. But when when Peart writes those words, one day I feel I'm on top of the world and the next it's falling in on me, and you hear Lifeson falling and Peart's drums falling and the bass rumbling, I, I think it's pretty profound as... Well, I I don't think they're very profound at all, and I would like to hear this band rock out a little bit more like they do on that song we just played. Uh, I think Lifeson, for whatever reason, doesn't seem just as engaged. I mean, I don't hear those big riffs anymore. Not enough of them to satisfy me. Oh, I couldn't disagree more. This is a super sleek sound that they have. No. Uh, They write a lot of melodies. But it leaves me at arm's distance. It's very cool and precise. Oh no, I couldn't disagree more. I I have a real problem warming up to this record. I, I think that the, the melodies are stronger than anything they've given us, uh, arguably since since those but, big but big where's hits. The Tom passion? Sawyer, where's and Red the passion? Bartow. Where's the it's passion there. on this, this record? This man is this man is talking about having nothing. He lost everything in his life, and he's and he's looking at what's left after that, and what's left for him is music and the hope of new love. You know, look, I mean, it's Rush. You're not gonna like. That's it's, way more not, eloquent than anything that's on the record, no, that's Jim, not what true. you just that's said. That's not true. Hey, I was not predisposed to like this album. I will admit there is an element of 13-year-old geek boy in my basement playing along to <laughs> 2112, all right? But but I can admit if it's an embarrassment, this record really surprised me. I think it's got energy, it's got life, it's got passion, and it's most of all got those great melodies. i got to say, on our rating scale of buy it, burn it, trash it, this is a buy it album, Snakes and Arrows by Rush, absolutely. They had some nice albums, late 70s, early 80s, but I'll tell you, there's a few tracks 
tracks on here that I like, Far Cry, The Way the Wind Blows, a couple of those instrumentals, especially the main monkey business. But other than that, Jim, not much here that, I, that I'd go back to. So I'd say it's about a four-song, five-song EP that I would burn. You're just mean. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Each week on Sound Opinions, Greg or I take a turn popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Mr. Cott, it is your turn. Jim, we have been talking a lot about Wilco in the last couple of shows. One of the reference points for the new album, Sky Blue Sky, you and I both brought it up in our respective articles for the Tribune and the Sun-Times. The Basement Tapes, famous recording uh, by Bob Dylan and the band in Woodstock, New York, in the uh, summer and fall of 1967. What were the basement tapes? Basically, uh, Dylan had retreated from the music business. He had suffered a motorcycle accident. He decided to just take some time off, go up to this sort of artist retreat in upstate New York, and, and, and take some time off and play some music with his friends in the band. They gathered in the basement of a house known as Big Pink, which is sort of like a a clubhouse for the members of the band. And literally in the basement, just started recording all the music they knew. Dylan was bringing a lot of songs into the situation. He was old blues covers, country songs, folk songs, as well as some originals that he'd written. The band was working up songs for its first album, its debut album, which would be called Music from Big Pink the following year. It was an epic jam session, just friends gathered in a room playing music in real time, much the way Wilco uh, did uh, Sky Blue Sky. I think it's that business of sitting in a circle that Wilco kept talking about that really resonates with that era of the band and Dylan. There's a great quote, Jim, uh, from Dylan during this era. With a certain kind of blues music, you can sit down and play it you may have to lean forward a little. There's a little <laughs> bit of urgency. You know, it's not, it's sit-down music, but there's still a sense of urgency mm-hmm. and passion about it. And I think you can really hear it in this example. I mean, they recorded tons of music during these uh, basement tape sessions. It wasn't really ever intended for a particular album. Finally, it surfaced as a double album uh, six, seven years later as the basement tapes. One of the best songs from that session is uh, This Wheel's on Fire. It's a Dylan Rick Danko collaboration, Danko the bass player in the band. You hear this song most famously perhaps on the band's debut album when Danko sings the vocal, but on this particular take it's Dylan taking the lead vocal, and you can hear that mixture of that relaxed slyness and that urgency in his voice, exactly the vibe they were going for. There's a fire and an intensity in the way he sings the chorus of this song, and backed up by the members of the band in this kind of relaxed setting, you can still hear this almost apocryphal message being sung by Dylan in this context. It put him at ease. Some of the best music he ever made from from his career was made in that basement in, in that year. Here's This Wheel's on Fire from the Basement Tapes on Sound Opinions.
Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick, This Wheel's on Fire by Bob Dylan and the band. Good stuff, Mr. Cott. What do we got on the show next week? More good stuff, Jim. Uh, Parts and Labor, terrific trio from Brooklyn, New York. More people need to hear about them, and you're going to find out why on next week's show with a live performance and an interview. Excellent. We have more people to thank than usual. We had a lot of help recording Wilco up at Northwestern University. So thanks to Drew Bodker, Andy Gilbert, Stan Doty, and Steve Versaw. And, of course, Sound Opinions, as always, was produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with Tori Southside Malatia being our executive producer and fearless leader. And I bet he likes this Rush album, because I'm going to play it for him right now. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Hi guys, this is Tara from Chicago. I was listening to your show today and you recommended some music for a guy who had four kids and I was thinking that you missed out. I think you could have recommended The Promise Ring. Possibly uh, the album Very Emergency would have been appropriate. I got my body and my mind on the same page and honey now happiness is all the Coffee and fun listen for kids, I think for adults too. So maybe you should uh, give that a try, give that guy a call, see if he can set a help out. Maybe his wife will like it too. Anyway, love the show. Thanks. I was just in the car listening to your show. It's Saturday morning, and there was a guy on who wanted a band that he would like and his kids would like. And I don't know why you didn't mention the changes. The photograph, the afternoon, the telephone that rang too soon. I couldn't speak, I couldn't breathe, not again. They're a really good band and they're fun to listen to. Edgy, but with a pop sound. Anyhow, I really like the changes and I thought I'd share it. Bye. Hi, my name is Tom Fink, and I live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I'm calling in regard to the Carrie Underwood download and the trend of young people. I was at the Elvis Costello concert last Tuesday, great concert, by the way. We were waiting in line for the doors to open, and a couple of people behind me was a young lady who had apparently been dragged to it by her boyfriend. Significantly, she was wearing her iPod. She's going to a live show. She's wearing her iPod. And she was worried that, oh, I don't know this guy. I've never heard of this guy. I don't know anything by him. I hope I like it. And the people between she and I were running through a list of song titles, and she just kept shaking her head and shaking her head. And finally I said, well, let's do this a different way. What radio stations do you listen to? And I just got this blank look, and she said, radio? And everybody laughed at me, not at her. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, downloads, iPods, sure. 
it's uh, it's a good indicator of the kind of thing you guys were talking about. She doesn't listen to the radio, and she's out of that loop. That's it. Love your show, and uh, bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Adam calling from Shanghai, China, where I listen to you guys via podcast. I'm calling about your recent review of Avril Lavigne's new CD, but as I listened to uh, your review, I kept thinking about how totally huge Avril Lavigne is in the People's Republic of China. She's so big that she's recorded a Mandarin Chinese version of Girlfriend, and the Chinese isn't very good, but that doesn't stop teenage girls from all over China embracing Avril, this song, and, and the CD. Anyway, I wasn't even going to bother calling about this, except the other morning I was in my apartment packed elevator and there was this 15-ish uh, Shanghainese schoolgirl listening to her knockoff iPod so loudly that I could clearly distinguish Avril's voice through the uh, headphones. And it was really irritating, all the middle-aged Chinese folks, um, so much so that one of them finally tapped her arm and asked her to turn it down. But as soon as those elevator doors opened, she turned it up probably even louder than it was before. After five years in China, that was perhaps the most rock and roll moment I've experienced, and I think it deserves celebrating. So thank you, Avril Lavigne, and thanks, Greg and Jim, for a consistently just great show. Love it. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.